What's up, girls, guys, gays, and theys? I'm Beth. And I'm TJ. Grab your bottle of wine and put your lawyer on speed dial. This is Nightmare on Girls Night. We're back for part two. Part two of The Beast of British Columbia. Yeah, the first serial killer we're covering. Not that he should get any, you know, spotlight for that because he's a complete dick face. Yeah. But he is the first serial killer we've covered and it there was a lot of information so it was a two-parter. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it. I love that it's a two-parter. Yeah, there's a it's, lot of information. It's a lot. It's heavy. Um, yeah. I brought something a little bit funny. Okay, I love it. I was hoping about, that. To talk about before we start into the, to yeah. the heaviness. Let's bring her up just to bring her back down. All right, all right. All right. Okay, I saw a drug dealer that was in prison. Yeah. He impersonated his cellmate and got out of jail. What? Was the cellmate being released and he was like, I am said man. The cellmate was being released. So Brian Francisco Roman, 26, of Longview, Washington, escaped from the Cowlitz County Jail on Monday after claiming to be his unidentified roommate. Oh my god. When a correctional officer arrived at Roman and his cellmate's room, they were sleeping. And when they called his roommate's name, Roman claimed to be him. Wow, they keep really good tabs on these guys. They were like, yeah, sure, you say, you say you're him. Roman, who has similar physical features as his roommate, then forged his name and was discharged with the victim's wallet, debit card, clothes, what? and keys. How pissed would you be to be the guy that was supposed to be let out? <laughs> he was napping. Oh my god. Could you imagine? No. And Okay, I want to know. Also, that's embarrassing for the cops. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. This is obviously the jail's fault. It's so embarrassing. The correctional officer's fault. But it's like correction staff did not realize the wrong inmate had been released until the victim inmate contacted them to inquire about when he was to to be released. Can we talk about the oxymoron of victim inmate to be released? (laughs) Victim inmate. (laughs) Um, 20, or sorry, more than 2,000 inmates escaped from jail in 2019. Wow, that shit still happens? <laughs> yeah. How? Um, so the one that escaped, he's been charged with second degree escape, first degree criminal impersonation, forgery, and second and third degree theft. 29 prisoners escaped federal facilities between January 2020 and June 2021, with most of them never being found again. That is a really high number, given (laughs) that we're in the year that we're in. Like, I would love to know how they're getting out. Well, Well, apparently it's quite easy. (laughs) (laughs) At some of the institutions, doors are left unlocked. What? It's a prison! (laughs) Security cameras are broken. And officials sometimes don't notice an inmate is missing for hours. How? You have literally one job. Keep them in the prison. (laughs) At one Texas lockup, security is so lax that the local law enforcement officials privately joke about its seemingly open-door policy, according to the Associated Press. I just... What? I could not stop laughing. What is the point? (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, I feel like a babysitter could do a better job. 
I honestly, I think you're... I mean, hopefully these aren't, like, murderers they're just letting walk out into no. the neighborhoods. The agency stressed that the inmates who are placed in the minimum security camps are the lowest risk offenders who pose minimal risk to the community and generally are allowed to participate in outdoor work programs and other initiatives. So they're not max facilities. Still, how embarrassing. (laughs) How embarrassing. Oh oh my god, that's hilarious. I I also, how bad is it that I feel bad for the other guy, although I'm like, you're in jail for a reason. But still, your time for freedom came. And the one that stole it. (laughs) Well, and the one that stole it now has to pay more time. Yeah, that's what I mean is idiots. Yeah. Like, you hear these escape stories, and I'm like, had you just been patient? I know. Although I don't think patient is probably one of their strong skill sets, no, given their... I would have to agree. In prison. Can we talk about how we're in chairs right now? We have <laughs> upgraded. We're not sitting on the floor. No. We're... Uh, we've... Uh, I'm like, I don't know what to do with my hands, <laughs> or where I have to reach for my water, we're going to have to get a side table. We are. I mean, we're still in the same place. The microphone is balanced on a KitchenAid mixer. It is. Box. So. Yeah. But it's an upgrade nonetheless. Yes. It's an upgrade we'll into it. the air, if nothing else. But we do have updates regarding our podcast. Ah, yes. Yes. Okay. So there's going to be some changes. Yes. We were uploading on Wednesdays with our yep. regular episodes. Um, but we're going to change that to being every Saturday, every second Saturday. Correct. And we're going to do two Sunday scaries a Correct. month. So it'll go Saturday regular, Sunday scaries, Saturday regular, Sunday scaries. Exactly. Because we're going to take essentially, I mean, Nightmare on Girls Nights. So mm-hmm. you usually do Girls Nights on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do our true crimes on a wild Saturday night. Uh-huh. And then throw you a little Sunday scaries. And we had so much fun with the Sunday scaries. It was so and it was fun. well received. So mm-hmm. we figured let's balance this bitch a little bit. And we got tons of themes when we were brainstorming oh, the other night. It was a blast. Should we we love a little spook. a glimpse of yeah. what we're going to talk about? Let's give them a little little sample a little taste so some of the themes that we talked about were uh haunted objects yeah cults yeah witches yeah haunted places ufos ufos <laughs> yeah flesh pedestrians yes i'll just i'll just leave it we'll at just that leave it at that because, we've got a lot yeah so yes moving forward you'll see us saturdays and then the following sunday and then the saturday and then the sunday mm-hmm but in the meantime, we are taking a little spring break. Woohoo! Woo! Wild spring break. <laughs> so you will catch us relaunching on May. We're on gonna, May 14th. 14th. We're going to come back uh, with a Sunday Scaries to start. So mm-hmm. we're after our little spring break. And then we're taking you on the road. Yes! <laughs> we are going on a road trip, yeah. which. I'm so Let's excited. call it Nightmare on... On the road. Girls trip. <laughs> sure. <laughs> nightmare on the girls road trip. That sounds great. It just flows off the top. It really does. Lovely. <laughs> I did want to plug again our Instagram, yes. Nightmare on Girls Night. Our email, nightmareongirlsnight at gmail.com. Yep. If you have any spooky Sunday scaries, send them to us on either platform. Um, any how am I lives yeah you can be anonymous we've got a lot of questions about if people are still okay to remain anonymous that's completely Absolutely. fine yeah 
write that shit into us. Yes, please. Um, and then can we talk about how softball? We join softball teams. We start tomorrow. Neither, neither oh my god, we start to tomorrow. Softball. Oh my god. Wait, Thursday. Oh my god. What day I was is like, it? I made plans. <laughs> <laughs> shit, I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, Thursday. I'm busy not playing softball. Oh my god, it's. I mean. That's a nightmare on girls' night. That's a nightmare. Lobbed I, in the face by a softball. Those that shit ain't soft. It's, it's also large. It's not. And uh, there will be drinking. Yeah. I don't know how else I'm gonna get through it. I don't either. I but I legitimately will be in the outfield. Can barely throw. <laughs> I close my eyes while said balls are flying towards me in the air. She doesn't like balls. I don't in like her balls face. flying towards my face, especially <laughs> big hard ones. So. <laughs> Why is Quote the softball that. bigger than a baseball? That's what I'd like to know. I don't know. Because I don't it's know. supposed to be easier to catch? It seems harder. My little baby hands can't grip that. Yeah. It's okay. It's fine. It'll be fine. We're going to do great. We're going to do great things. They're going to regret having us on their team. Yes. Bench me, coach. <laughs> we'll be out in the outfield. And in, uh, on the... Yeah. What do they call it? On the bench? Couldn't uh, tell you. In the dugout? This is how much I don't know because when they were like, what position would you want to play? And I was like, I want to be the least valuable player and position, so put me in shortstop. And I <laughs> swear to God, you would have thought I killed the goddamn Pope. Everybody yeah. was like, what are you mad That's that? I was like, God damn it. This is how much I don't know. We don't know anything. Reliant. We're not sporty girls. This is not the podcast you come to to learn about sports. Let's not. Or no. no. <laughs> we just like talking about men in tights when it's NFL season, but that'll be later. Ooh la la, look at those tushes. So. Get into it, girl. Yeah, we are going to get back into the Clifford Olsen Jr. case. Where we left it off last time, at this point, he's already killed six teens. Youth. Children. Children. Yeah, let's call them what they are. They're yep. children. So. At this time, everyone was starting to realize that a serial killer was on the loose and the people in the lower mainland and Fraser Valley region of British Columbia were gripped with fear. In the short span from November 1980 to July 1981, a number of children had gone missing and were later found dead. Parents in suburban Vancouver complained that the police were not treating reports of missing youth seriously enough, which, like, obviously, because how many of his victims were they, like, Run away, yep. run away, run away. It's yep. like, no, I don't think a nine-year-old ran away, but no. good fucking try. Didn't it take until the nine-year-old to for them to like yeah. actually take it seriously? Yeah. And even then, it's like they took it seriously, but they still were like, no, but none of these are connected. Right, right. They didn't fit the pattern. Yeah. And we will dive a lot more into the pattern, so they say, or lack thereof. Okay. So the... There were 200 Mounties in the Surrey detachment that processed roughly 2,000 missing persons cases and investigated some 18,000 criminal code offenses in those two years alone. So, like, there was a lot of shit happening. Many of the juveniles did turn out to be runaways, congregating on the Granville Street area downtown, while some were just staying with friends or out partying past their curfew without informing their parents. So the police figured they'd turn up, and for the most part, they did. But again... All of these actual victims fell victim then to this assumption that they were just out partying. At the time, there were roughly 6,000 traffic cops, fraud investigators, homicide detectives. I'm going to use this loosely because that's what they called it in the day. Indian special constables, political bodyguards, analysts, and administrators in the province's law enforcement system. 
Each force and detachment was a separate and distinct entity within its own internal bureaucracy, but they were expected to all act collectively together. Right. Which they struggled to do. That rarely happened in this case, though, and the problems of interdetachment and interforce communication was one of the reasons Corporal Les Forsyth wanted everyone who had dealt with Clifford or who might have an active missing persons file to be at these meetings in a room altogether. Okay, good. Unfortunately, the RCMP chain of command was undergoing dramatic upheaval in the spring and summer of 1981, and the West Coast ranks were experiencing widespread staff shortages and low morale. And this affected daily operations that coincided with Clifford's killing spree. It essentially was the perfect fucking storm. Of course. It sounds like today nobody has staff. (laughs) Nope. So July 15th, 1981 was the first time that Olson's name was mentioned at a law enforcement conference. As a person responsible for Ada's court case, Corporal Les Forsyth continued to build a case against Clifford. He did this, like, behind the scenes, though, just based on, like, Clifford's multiple arrests, but Mm -hmm. he still wasn't considered a suspect in all of these disappearances. So it was just the first time that they started talking more broadly about Clifford. Okay. In a more coordinated effort, a meeting was scheduled for RCMP officers and local police departments from Vancouver and the lower mainland communities of Richmond. Les Forsyth prepared a five-page profile on Clifford for the July 15th meeting. This profile outlined outlined Clifford's known and suspected recent criminal activities, his trait of offering intended victims a job for $10 per hour, and his penchant for border rented cars, and his known recent addresses in Surrey and Coquitlam. Because he did get caught with underage teens in his car, so they did know he was offering jobs and doing all of that, so they were building a profile, which is why it's even more fucked up that they didn't consider him a suspect in all of these. Yeah. And it took six children. Well, it's obviously going to be more than that because you said 10 at the beginning. Yeah. So this meeting was simply intended to be a brainstorming session of investigators from around the lower mainland who have a common interest in missing persons investigations. When the story aired, viewers took note of the police's growing concern about the missing children in the greater Vancouver area. Police finally decided to consider Clifford as a suspect in the case of the missing lower mainland children. Oh, wow. Finally. It's not great, though. An RCMP police briefing document stressed that at this juncture, although Clifford was considered a possible suspect in the disappearances and murders, a considerable, considerable picture of uncertainty still existed. It was not clear whether all the children reporting missing were, in fact, genuinely missing or whether foul play had been involved. The matter of whether or not the disappearances themselves could be connected or whether they individually or collectively were connected to previous unsolved murders was also open to conjecture, although under continuous analysis at this time. It should be stressed here that Clifford had earlier been considered a possible suspect in the Christina and Weller homicide, which was the first victim Mm -hmm. and her body was found in Richmond, Mm -hmm. and that of Mary Ellen Marnie Jamison, uh, Jamison, sorry, her homicide, which occurred in the Seashells area. He was later dropped from prominence in Christine Weller's investigation when a stronger suspect surfaced. Which Excuse is like, me? I know, it's like how. However, Clifford remained of interest to the serious crime unit in the Jameson case. I tried to find more info on Mary Ellen Jameson, but I really couldn't find anything. Okay. Like, anything. At this point, they've only found three bodies? At this point? six or four? 
No, at this point, I believe they've only found two. Two bodies. Yes, I believe it's two. I think I get to that in here. I'll have to find it, though. But Jumping the gun. Now it's Thursday, July 23rd, 1981, and this 15-year-old's name is Raymond King Jr. Raymond King Jr. was enjoying his summer holidays and looking for his first real job. He made his routine routine trip to the Canada Manpower Youth Employment Centre, chaining his bike behind the building. Keen to do any type of work, he had come to the center so often over the summer that the staff was even getting to know him by name. Mm-hmm. Raymond Jr. met Clifford that day, unfortunately. He was lured by a promise of work, and Clifford drove them along a route he frequently traveled, which was along Highway Number 7, towards Harrison Mills and Weaver Lake. Turning off the highway, he headed for the popular camping area, then took a rough backcountry road that led to a BC Forest Service campground beside the Alpine Lake. He beat in Ray's head with rocks and then dumped the, dumped his body off the steep hillside trail. Oh my god. The night that Clifford killed the young boy, he had logged 403 kilometers in his car that he rented from, Met, from Metro in Port Coquitlam. It was later noted that Clifford spoke to the Metro rental clerk and offered her a job shampooing carpets in his apartment complex that he said he owned at Lougheed Mall. She said that he only ever came in to get a car on the days he knew that she worked. Oh. And the job he offered was significantly more than what she got at the rental place. Mm. Thank God she never did accept the job offer. Good. Because clearly she yeah. was in his sights. Yeah. But unfortunately, Raymond was. And after Raymond's disappearance, his father, thankfully, was extremely adamant and fought about the fact that his son was not a runaway. Just two days after Raymond's disappearance and murder on July 25th, Judy Cosma, who was the previous victim, which was the last victim I spoke about in the last episode, Mm -hmm. her body was found near Weaver Lake. She went missing on July 9th, so this was approximately 14 days later. And then just as suddenly as Raymond disappeared and Judy's body was found, the killer struck again. So now it is Saturday, July 25th, 1981. The next victim's name is Sigrun Arnd, and they were 14 years old. Sigrun Arn was a visiting German student from Weinheim, a small Rhine Valley town. Sigrun was spotted with Clifford in a Coquitlam pub and then later by a couple of passengers in a passing train where she was crouched with a middle-aged man who was found out to be Clifford. It was only after Clifford confessed that her name was actually added to the murder list. Oh, wow. To his murder list. So... Mr. and Mrs. Arndt received the devastating news by long distance. It was on August 28th when the telephone rang and Mrs. Arndt's sister, who lived in Vernon, which is a small BC town, that was on, well, I guess not super small, but I digress, was on the line and told her that police were there and she was now going to translate a very sad message. The message was, the police had found a dead girl who might be Sigrun. Her parents didn't believe it because they said she was an intelligent and very cautious girl. Her parents noted that they discussed frequently how she would never get into a stranger's car, not to mention that she would never hitchhike or engage with strangers. Sigrun left behind a diary. She raved about the trips by boat and horseback, but most of all, she fell for the friendliness, open-heartedness, and eagerness to help local people. Mm. I'm sure it was because of this that she lost all of her natural caution and timidness, Mm -hmm. timidness, noted her parents. Her body was found in Richmond, partly buried in a trench, some 400 yards from where Simon Partington had been found the day before. So that's jumping ahead a bit. but That poor baby. I know. So police line tape was strung from the trees near Weaver Lake, the rugged recreation area of East Vancouver. Sigrun had been repeatedly stabbed in the head, neck, 
thorax and abdomen and dumped not far from where Darren Johns Roods, which was another of Clifford's victims, body was found and near where Marku, that serial mm-hmm. killer that he like took his influence, had dumped his victim five years earlier. Again, only two days later, another youth vanished. Oh my gosh, so fast. He's, he's like, like really... In July alone, he's moving quick. Yeah. So Monday, July 27th, 1981, Terry Lynn Carson, she was 15 years old. <sighs> Terry had left the family home on Monday morning at about 8 o'clock. She was only 105 pounds, a little over 5 feet, so she was no match for Clifford, who stopped and offered her a ride. This ride included a drink that was laced with drugs. Mm. She was just another student looking for a summer job, so Clifford's ruse worked well, and the drink was a sort of celebration for having found a job. Which is, like, fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, it just breaks your heart. Like, so excited, just wanting to celebrate. As he had done with a few of the others, Clifford drove away from the city into the wilderness four miles east of Agassiz, out on the north shore of the Fraser River. He turned off at Rosedale, a rural area, where in the forest he strangled her, burned her clothes, and threw her purse and her shoes into the Fraser River. Terry Lynn Carson's mother would eventually sit in the courtroom as the wheels of justice turned, grief-stricken, as she mourned her 15-year-old's murder. Only two of the children's bodies that had been recovered so far had been connected by police. That was Darren Johnsrud and Judy Cosma. And even though their bodies were not yet found, the police were convinced that Simon Partington and Ada Court had been murdered as well. Christine Weller was not considered a relevant case, and the other persons, missing persons at the time, were just that, considered still just missing. Mm. Which, like, where did they think these youngins went? Honest to God. I have a question. Is there a map out there that shows where, like, the bodies were found? Yeah, there is. Yeah. And then there's also, like, a layout of all of their faces and names. Okay. Um, And I'll post that as well. Okay. As many as 200 police were involved in the manhunt at this point. Any detachment with a missing child were asked to call and make them aware so that they could assist in an overview capacity. Essentially be like, tell us anybody and everyone that's going missing so we can try to find a pattern. Okay. They would look into each individual case to see if there was a connection. They weren't sure at this point if all were connected, if a couple were connected, or if just none at all. They asked all parents to... Definitely be concerned and be aware of their kids. Mm-hmm. If someone even did just make an attempt to pick them up and did not did not succeed, they still wanted to hear from them. Okay. It's now Thursday, July 30th, 1981. Constable Fred Mile, or Mail, of the RCMP Serious Crimes Unit had a simple strategy. His idea was to covertly tape a conversation with Clifford, insinuating some kind of reward, because Clifford's arrogant as shit. <laughs> The idea was, if Clifford was a murderer and he thought he could make some sort of money, he might go back to the crime scenes in order to retrieve some physical evidence to fork over. Okay. If he was not the murderer or knew who the murderer was, then maybe he would just tell them. Okay. Clifford met Detective Tar at a White Spot restaurant and then was joined by RCMP's Corporal Mail and Corporal Drozda. The hidden microphones transmitted the conversation to a Mountie in a car in the parking lot. So, this is a conversation I'm quoting. Quite a few homicides around here, aren't there? Mail began. And we understand that you might be able to help us. We're prepared to compensate you for whatever you're able to tell us or help us, but we have to know if you're able to help us. Clifford apparently stopped, blew on his coffee, and seemed pretty much unfazed. All eyes were on Clifford at this point, and he basically just said nothing. Mm. Clifford's eyes did light up eventually at the idea that they were coming to him for information and he started as they pressed more to get a little bit more and more cocky about like, oh, I'm a big deal. They want information. Mm. 
With a casual, well, I'll get back to you if I find out anything, the officers watched Clifford leave the restaurant and amble out into the world. No one followed him, suspecting him of murdering several children. Excuse me? I know. They had no eyes on him. No. So, although Clifford was a prime suspect and they did watch him, they had nothing to charge him with relation to the murders. So, on July 29th, the police dropped surveillance because, as the Mounties put it, it became obvious that Clifford had detected the fact that this was in place. It would not be reinstated until August 6th when he returned from a trip to Alberta with his wife and baby. Okay, so they did have surveillance on him. But they dropped it. Right. So, they started with it. At that point? Like, after that conversation? Yeah. (laughs) So now it's Thursday, July 30th, 1981. This 17-year-old's name is Louise Chartrand. Clifford met with the police. That evening, he went to meet his lawyer, Bob Schatz. But on the way, he spotted 17-year-old Louise Chartrand, who is described as very tiny and young-looking for her age, which is gross because you know that's why he picked her up. That's disgusting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as we talked about in the last episode, you said that he picks, like, the weak... Yep. The Little. ones that look young, that can't fight back. Yep. The Ew. youngest of seven children, she had moved from Quebec with three of her sisters, settling in the Fraser Valley town of Maple Ridge. Seven kids? Yeah. Wild. Whoa. Police believed that Louise hitchhiked part of the way to her night shift waitress job with a man. After she was dropped off, she headed for the store in downtown Mission to buy cigarettes. It was only about a 10-minute walk from the restaurant where she worked. During this time, Clifford got her into his car drugged her, and headed to Whistler. On the way, he even stopped... This is wild. On the way, he even stopped with Louise in his car at the Squamish RCMP detachment to pick up his confiscated gun. Shut up. Thankfully, he was turned away because the officer in charge of court exhibits was not available. Oh. Then Clifford headed towards Whistler. Oh my fucking God. Clifford drove into a a gravel pit north of the ski resort and then smashed the girl's skull in with repeated hammer blows. Could you imagine that girl being like, I was just just, at RCMP? I know. It breaks your heart. He then buried her in a shallow grave. Louise's fellow employees at Bino's restaurant checked with her family when she did not arrive for her 8 p.m. shift. One of Louise's sisters called the RCMP detachment the next morning. The RCMP took action, immediately suspecting foul play. They stated... We know she isn't a runaway. The fact that she's missing is inconsistent with her normal pattern of behavior, which... Oh. This drives me crazy because a 17-year-old goes missing and they're like, well, we know she's not a runaway. It's not consistent with her pattern of behavior. Yeah, but what but about 12, all the other ones? 13, 14, 15, are you kidding me? Yeah, what is making them say that? I know, like, I know. What? why now? Yeah, I know. So by the first week of August, the panic was spreading. Clifford had killed six young boys and girls all within the month of July alone. Oh my god. Meanwhile, a task force was in the works to handle the disappearances. Directed by Superintendent Bruce Northrop, who was responsible and accountable for Clifford's case. The coordinated investigation was begun in the hopes of calming the brewing public panic. Which, like, I wouldn't have let my child even leave the goddamn house. Yeah, no. I'm gonna skip through all of the kind of like police shit that I talked about earlier because essentially it just talks about how there was a lot of police working the case but it was a completely messy investigation until they brought in Bruce Northrup who is named coordinator of the task force in 1981 okay and it wasn't until Northrup came aboard that police really started like focusing in on Clifford again so he's the one that like essentially put it in motion he was the one that was like get your shit together yeah and let's do this okay 
So, August 6th, 1981. The 6th was a momentous day. It was the beginning of the events that took Clifford off of the streets of Canada for the rest of his life. Hallelujah. God. It was also the beginning of several days of methodical police work. The surveillance team finally went into high gear. August 7th to 11th, 1981. Not all of the bodies in this case were found, which eliminated the chance of securing leads or even knowing if one person was responsible. That's up to this point. Okay. The fact that known and suspected victims were both male and female was in itself most unusual and also further complicated matters. They didn't interview Clifford until his arrest on the 12th of August because they didn't have anything up to this point. Now this is his arrest on August 12th. Under surveillance, Clifford was not easy to follow. The watchers, which is what this group was called, claimed that he would stop in the middle of the street, make sudden inexplicable U-turns, go down one-way alleys, stop and reverse. Pain in the ass. He also had a habit of continually changing rental cars, which was also annoying. Yeah. Clifford drove incessantly. At one point, he traveled over 20,000 kilometers in three months in oh 14 different rental cars. Holy shit. In mid-July, he drove an escort 5,569 kilometers in just two weeks. That's insane. Like, excessive. What, what are you doing? Like, I like to drive. Yeah. But I'm not driving that much. How do you have gas. that money? Yeah. Clifford took the ferry over to Vancouver Island and, after burglarizing two Victoria residences, made his way up north towards Nanaimo. He pulled over to the side of the road and picked up two young women that were hitchhiking. So that must be how he's getting his money. He's, like, he's yeah. breaking and entering. Yeah. Well, his, yeah, his criminal record Thrift. is extensive. I said thrifting? Thrifting. Thrif well, one of, the, one of his victims, he said he picked up and he was pissed when, after he killed them because he was told she had $100. Right. And it ended up only being 10 Right. And like, I remember I said, it's about money now. I guess yeah. there was some motive motive for, just for money fucking psychopath yeah roughly three hours later the car was weaving across the highway on the other sparsely populated side of the massive island occasionally it hit the shoulder so he's erratic at this point mm. at the bottom of hydro hill just before the turnoff for long beach the car slowed and it turned onto a dirt logging road kicking up a cloud of dust and gravel Moments later, two local RCMP squad cars pulled to a stop across the entrance to the road, blocking the car's retreat, and out came the uniformed Mounties. They had been summoned by the helicopter crew that was following Clifford as he was driving. Two police officers followed the car's path, picking their way through the Douglas Fern spruce that lined either side of the isolated track. In the distance, they could see three people standing outside the car passing a bottle and they could hear Clifford. They moved closer and they could hear him telling one of the women to take a walk. He began to yell and the police decided it was time to move. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine the stress of being like, get there. Yeah, because those girls are yeah. in trouble now. Yeah. So Clifford was spotted by the police emerging from the undergrowth and sprinted back to the car. He threw the vehicle into gear and roared back the way he had come, but he was arrested at the roadblock. The women were confused, but they were safe. Good. Clifford said they had only stopped so that he could go to the bathroom. Police charged him with impaired and dangerous driving, impounded his car, and took him into, into the local police detachment. Good. The police searched his rented car and found a green address book with the name of the 14-year-old New Westminster missing girl, Judy Cosma. No way. When he was arrested, at this time, only three bodies had actually been discovered and identified. The police did not yet know how many children had been murdered, and the decision was made to arrest Clifford on, the Vancouver, Isl on Vancouver Island 
and then allow the intensive interrogation to commence. So on August 18, 1981, Clifford was charged with the first-degree murder of Judy Cosma, which ultimately resulted in a full confession. Finally! Yeah. Now, on August 21st, 1981, at 8.35 a.m., Northrop learned for the first time of what would be known as the $100,000 deal that was put forward by Olson. What? So this was called the Cash for Bodies deal. So I'm going to give a quote. Clifford Olson was quoted saying, I'll give you 11 bodies for $100,000. The first one will be a freebie. Oh my God. At this time, there was no concrete evidence that the missing children and the murders were related. Only the bodies of Christine Weller, Darren Johnsrud, Raymond King, and Judy Cosma had been recovered. Clifford proposed a schedule to recover the missing bodies of the dead children one at a time in a very specific order, and then money would be placed in his account. So it started with... Louise Chartrand at Whistler, Colleen Daniel at Surrey, Terry Lynn Carson at Chilliwack, four locations that apparently would have evidence there, Ada Court at Agassiz, Sandra Wolfsteiner at Chilliwack, Simon Partington at Richmond, Sigrun Arndt at an unspecified location. Wow. He said, you'll get statements with the bodies. I'll give you all the evidence, the only things that the things only the killer would know as Clid clifford led police to further bodies northrop was convinced clifford's admission to two more murders was merely a ploy bearing in mind his many escapes throughout his time in prison mm. clifford was taken was to be taken in a car with three unarmed police officers one that handcuffed him and the other that was just there for security the car was to be escorted by two other cars with two officers in each armed with revolvers rifles and shotguns District 2 was alerted that Clifford might be taken their way and was arranged for the use of police aircraft just in case. So if escape was on his mind, they were not letting him get away with it. Which, like, fuck, finally do something because y'all have done fucking nothing Nothing. up to this point. (laughs) Throughout the trial and the media, it was noted that Clifford Olson was a classic case of extreme psychopath. Yeah, no kidding. A psychiatrist noted, an extreme true psychopath is a thrill seeker with pathological glibness anti-social pursuit of power and lack of guilt it conjures up images of anthony perkins or anthony hopkins in their portrayals of the extreme psychopaths in psycho the silence of the lambs and its equal hannibal mm-hmm. which yeah yeah chief psychiatrist dr russell fleming explains the nature of the extreme psychopath which is an individual with severe antisocial personality disorder that essentially leads to criminal behavior Although he never interviewed Clifford, he speculated as to why Clifford was able to maintain composure. In quotes, there's a core group of psychopaths of whom Clifford clearly seems one. He can be intriguing, charismatic, engaging, predictable, and sinister with the capacity to manipulate those around them. Recent studies indicate there may be a genetic component to psychopathy, Mm. a failure or misfiring of the brain. Mm. At any rate, their brains are certainly different. Which is crazy. I would love to know the science behind that. So bottom line, the psychopath has deficient effective responses to people. Couple this with Clifford's pedophilia and sadism. It's not surprising that he essentially escalated to serial murderer Mm -hmm. with the most vulnerable kind of victims, children. The following examples of Clifford's sadistic behavior further support the evidence of psychopathic behavior. Now this I want to preface by saying this is the only source i found that 
quoted that he did these things. So I want to put it out there because this shit is crazy. So I want to bring light to it if he did, but I, I couldn't find other sources to verify this. Okay. He injected air bubbles into one victim's arms. He missed the vein and ended up battering the victim to death with his hammer. He drove a nail into one victim's head for no apparent reason since it was not the cause of death. He telephoned some of the victim's families playing back a tape recording of one of the victim's deaths. He telephoned and wrote letters to others relishing their pain. He ran down one victim with his rental car and the violent treatment control and manipulation of his wife were all examples of sadistic behavior he essentially portrayed that's disgusting isn't it fucked up i couldn't imagine like what honest to god satan this man is dead now correct yes bliss he died disgusting piece of shit i know he died a slow and torturous death i mean he died from terminal cancer but i hope it was torturous for his sake i hope it hurt yeah um you said that there was no childhood trauma and we talked about that there was no like accident in his childhood no not that was reported no brain trauma so yeah maybe it is some sort of like neurological it has to be well yeah for you to be that disgusting his parents by all accounts were great parents and his siblings grew up to be completely normal yeah functioning contributing humans of society wow so this man was literally born from satan's asshole Mm because there's no other yeah. There's no other explanation. So in less than nine months, Clifford killed 11 times. Wow. There were also four other suspected murder victims for which he was not tried. Okay. Verna Jerky, which was 17, she was reported missing from the Hope Yale area, not located. Pamela Darlington from Kamloops, BC. Monica Jack from BC. And Marnie Jameson, the one I mentioned earlier, from Gibson's BC. But they all went missing around the same time. Yes, okay. within this time frame. They kind of fit the MO mm. of Clifford, but again, he was not tried for their murders. He never admitted well, to... Well, I'll get into that. Okay. He says a lot of fucking shit. Mm. So, the fact that he killed both boys and girls confused the investigation. In the 1980s, the phenomenon of serial killers was poorly understood, and we know that. We yeah. talked about that on the last episode. Police relied way too heavily on their prior experience with pedophiles, assuming that cases were not linked because the victims were of different sexes or ages. Mm. Pedophiles that prey on prepubescent children usually have no gender preference, Mm -hmm. while those preying on older children focus on one gender or the other, not both. Okay. While patterns of criminal behavior, whether based upon the experience of the police or expert opinion from criminal profilers, are very useful in understanding the criminal mind and leading police to the right suspect. Police departments need to think outside the box, though. And they really boxed themselves in when they were trying to figure out a pattern. No kidding. Because criminals do not feel confined to behave according to what other criminals have done in the past and what experts have profiled, police also must not constrain their investigation to these artificial limitations. Like, they can't say it's always going to fit into one of these categories because every psychopath is going to be different. Yeah, no. Like, we talk about... um, Oh my god, why am I forgetting the serial killer that had no fucking rhyme or reason? Oh. He just murdered mur- ah. or buried the murder kits. Israel, Israel Keys. Israel Keys, yes. Well. He has no rhyme or reason. Yeah. There would be, like, his victims were various ages, sexes, genders, races, yeah. towns. Like, you can't put nothing. You can't anyone put in anyone a in a box. No, because yeah. everyone's brain is different. It, yeah. does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. So January 11th to 14th, now of 1982. Justice Harry McKay 
which was Clifford's trial judge, was quoted in the courtroom saying, I don't have the words to describe the enormity of your crimes and the heartbreak and anguish you have caused to so many people. No punishment in a civilized country could come close to being adequate. You should never be granted parole for the remainder of your day. It would be foolhardily to let you at large. Mm -hmm. The trial came to a quick conclusion on the third day when Clifford changed his plea to guilty within only a few hours of the court proceedings. He pled guilty to 11 counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 11 concurrent life sentences with no parole eligibility for 25 years. Almost right away, this dumbass began filing a series of legal claims in an attempt to argue that he was being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> Cry me a goddamn oh, fucking river. My God. Nobody gives a shit. No. Actually, if anything, we're like, yes, subject his ass. <laughs> I don't give a shit about human rights when you're a serial killer. Especially to children. Yeah. At one point, he demanded plexiglass be installed on his cell to protect him from other prisoners, and he also demanded a sex doll be provided to him. Gag. Excuse me. Gross. There right? There it is. <laughs> you waited so That's long. disgusting. I know. Gross. I don't want to think about him having sex. Ew! He also refused to show remorse towards his victims and their families. He taunted them from behind bars by apparently submitting himself into poetry competitions Excuse where me? he wrote about the murders and with outlandish claims at parole hearings. Clifford was once asked, what would you do if you got out? Clifford grinned and said, I'd take up where I left off. That was it. What a fucking monster. That's a What just... a monster. Wow. And... Yeah. As we've talked about at parole hearings, these families Are have to there. go through all yeah. of this trauma again yeah. and re, like, re-put in their statements. And it's just so... How do you it's heal? so awful. You, you and then don't. especially when a fuck face like this is taunting them and make, like... Yeah. It's disgusting. You would... It would almost get to the point that you're like, I want to attend these parole hearings to make sure he never gets out, but I mentally and emotionally cannot anymore. Yeah. But I mean, thankfully, he pretty much sealed his fate by being a complete and utter psychopath. Well, I just, like, throughout all of this, I'm like, it can't get worse. Can't get worse. Can't get worse. Keeps getting worse. Yeah, it does. Although Clifford had been sentenced to a minimum of 25 years without parole, he believed all along that he would make parole in 15 years. Oh. <clears throat> thankfully, it took only 15 minutes for the jury to return a verdict rejecting Clifford's bid for parole. Oh, thank God. At one point, at one of his parole hearings, he claimed to have killed more than 100 people. Oh, wow. So these are his outlandish claims. He claimed to have killed more than 100 people, and twice he attempted to get out early by claiming he had inside information on the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City. Oh, he's really reaching. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The um, secret deal, which was the cash Mm -hmm. for bodies deal, the $100,000 deal, was cut in 1981, but it wasn't exposed to media until a year later. Hmm. The police did not disclose the cash deal for fear of prejudicing Clifford's right to a fair trial, and... Many thought it was absolutely disgusting that Clifford was essentially profiting from his crime. So I'm pretty sure the police also did it because they didn't want public outcry and public outrage. So he got the money. Well, I'll get into that. Okay. So police justified this, though, because when asked what evidence had been found, Northrop applied um, essentially that there were some items which could be established as belonging to each of the four victims whose bodies had been found without Clifford's assistance, thus establishing he was the killer. Only the killer would have knowledge of where these articles had been hidden. So he provided, he did provide useful information, essentially. Right. 
The Attorney General of British Columbia, Alana William, Alan Williams, sorry, also wondered how such an appealing deal had been made. Yet, the good news was, in exchange for $100,000, the Attorney General could guarantee those first-degree murder convictions. They could ease the anxiety of the parents of the mis missing children and subdue the terror in British Columbia and an end to an expensive police investigation. Okay. Without that, there was no hard evidence, and Clifford, who was an experienced criminal, was unlikely to talk about the murders. Hmm. So the day before Clifford was charged with the death of Judy Cosma, this is going back now, he had a two-hour visit with his wife, Joan, and their infant son. In a quote, Clifford states, My wife told me that if I told police what I did, they would lock me up in jail for the rest of my life, and I would, in all probability, be killed in jail. She said, so again, he has poor fucking grammar. Mm -hmm. She said, what would she tell her son when he grew up, and everyone was teasing him at school for what his father had done? I told her it would be up to me to tell my son what has happened. I knew in my heart that I must give up my wife and son for the rest of my life. My son will have to have will have to a father to call daddy and he will grow up knowing his father for the sins he has done. And my wife will always bear my mistake for the rest of her life. She told me that I must do what is right and that she will always love me and that someday we would be in heaven together praising the Lord together. Oh, so now he's some religious yeah. saint. So this is why he ended up taking that cash deal or why he ended up proposing the cash deal. Right. So there was public outcry over the $100,000. Many people said there's no fucking way he should be getting the money. There's no way she should be getting the mm -hmm. money because a lot of people at this point felt like there's no way she didn't know well, that's he was, was killing all ask. of these people. Yeah. So it's now the fall of 1984. Finally, after almost three years, while Joan Olson, his wife, and lawyers anticipated the legal examination of their conduct, the Supreme Court of British Columbia examined the cash for bodies deal and made a decision about whether the $100,000 would be granted to Joan. So at one point, Joan was quoted saying, It floors me that anyone would think that I had anything to do with it, hmm. which were the murders. I cried. I cried a lot about it at first. I don't know how to explain it. I really don't think too much about them now. I'm oh. glad the children are buried. I had nightmares about the ghost of Simon Partington begging for help. My life had been a living hell of alcoholic beatings and abuse. Oh, I hate him. I hated him for the night he held a knife to my throat. He terrorized me, scared me, beat me. There was no one I could turn to. But he's a real charmer. He does have a way with words, and I've yet to see a woman that hasn't been attracted to him. I don't know what it is, really. I'd like to say it was his brown eyes, but it couldn't have been that. Excuse me? Wait. I have so many Just questions. Wait. In the end, Joan and her child were allowed to keep no, the money. No. She was quoted saying, I think that money was given to me in good faith. I don't have any guilty conscience. I can look at myself in the mirror and say, you're a good person. Don't be ashamed. Oh, okay. I feel for her that she was in an abusive relationship. Agreed. But she's still saying that she loves him yep. and that he's charming. Yep. He's killed... Yeah. 11 kids. Also, and I don't know what she ended up doing, but I have a feeling she didn't do this. Take that goddamn money and divide it between the 11 fucking oh. families that are now suffering. Mm -hmm. Why is your ass getting essentially money mm -hmm. that the murderer of those kids gave up? Yeah. Like, got? Uh -huh. Like, are you joking me? If she had any soul, eh. she would give that money to those families. Well, she obviously wasn't thinking about that. No. She's... And I, I'll look it up and I'll come back with an update to see if I can find about what she did with the money. But I can mm. 
I googled it while you were chatting to see how much that's worth today, and yeah. it's like three hundred thirty-six thousand dollars. Jesus. Yeah. It makes me so angry because, again, yes, if she didn't know anything about this, she is also a victim in the sense that she was manipulated and in an abusive relationship, and I understand all that. I do. I just think that's dirty-ass money. It is. Why, as the wife of the murderer of these children, why would you even want to keep that? Yeah. How could you keep in, that? In good conscience, you know where the money came right? from, what it came from. Yeah. And, yeah. And what the motive behind mm-hmm. it was. I don't understand how you can keep that. Yeah. So, I ended it by saying... September 30, 2011, dead by terminal cancer. Who's <laughs> dead in cap logs. I hope he went to hell back to his father's asshole. Right? <laughs> being Satan. <laughs> right? Is his father that? being Satan, oh. yes. <laughs> we always get uh, uh, we southern We always get a little southern. Wow. I that know. one punched me in the throat. And there's a lot of, mov- lot of moving parts and a lot of details, so hopefully... You stayed with me because even I got lost a bit, but I tried to, tried to keep it in order. But it bounces around a lot because there was just so many victims. It's mm-hmm. so sad, and it took so long for the police to friggin' figure it out. And this guy's rap sheet was a goddamn Bible. Yeah, no, like kidding. it was eleven thousand fucking pages. How do you not look at him and go, "We should probably." look further into you not like oh drop surveillance because he's kind of annoying yeah like yeah that yeah that was messy yeah that was rough i know so that was our first serial killer yeah we will uh our next one will be fun oh our next one's gonna be yeah the next one will be again just to reiterate we'll make a comeback from our spring break yeah with a sunday scaries on may 14th yes we will and we'll be on the road and we'll be on the road yeah. Beep bopping around. Beep bopping around. <laughs> Hopefully not, you know, encountering any... Oh, man. Well, it would be good podcast content. Shut up. Yeah, let's not put that out <laughs> to the world. We're driving quite a far, far ways. We are. But we're safe. And we're well, smart. I have some... And I'm, we're strong. And we're women. We got... I have a pretty long rap sheet I'm of putting a weapon my in lives, the car. so... Perfect. I'm putting a weapon in the car. You should. Bear spray. Well, yeah, we can't. We a hatchet. A, we can't get a gun. <laughs> I don't need guns. We're not in the U.S. of A. No. Anyways, right. remember, all good stories start with a girl's name, but not everyone makes it to brunch. Bye.